Mark chapter 15, verses 20 through 25. Let me read those words for you. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compel one, Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place, Golgotha, which is, being interpreted, the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Why was Christ crucified upon a cross? I'm not asking why was Christ put to death, but I'm asking why was Christ put to death on a cross? He might have been slain by the Romans by being beheaded, by being burned at the stake, or being flogged to death by the Roman scourge. For all of these means of execution would have sufficed in putting Christ to death. But he wasn't slain by any of these means. Why? Because hanging upon a cross proclaimed to all who passed by that such a person was cursed above all men. According to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, there we read the Apostle Paul who says this, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, that is, from the wrath which the law of God brings upon us because we are sinners and cannot keep his law. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. You see, back in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, after someone was executed, if they were to put someone who had been executed to hang them upon a tree, it was a way of saying that this person deserves the greatest degree of shame. This person is cursed. This person has suffered judgment duly and justly for a crime which he has committed. God, I would submit to you, is here giving mankind an object lesson as to why Christ died. Christ, dear ones, was the sinless Son of God, and so he did not suffer the wrath and the curse of God for his own sin. 
He died in order that he might suffer the wrath and the curse of God which sinners like you and me deserved. You see, he voluntarily became a curse for undeserving sinners in order that those same undeserving sinners might forever escape God's wrath and condemnation which has deserved them and might rather know the forgiveness and the love of God. You see, beloved, sin against God and His commandments is a debt that must be paid. It's a debt that must be paid. And since all of us within this room and all who live upon the face of the earth have sinned against the holy commandments of God, all men are therefore indebted to God due to their sins. And that debt must either be paid by the sinner or it must be paid by a substitute for the sinner. And God has provided a substitute to bear that sin and that guilt and that condemnation, namely, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the good news. This is the gospel. Christ voluntarily covenanted with God his Father from all eternity to be that substitute for those sinners whom God had chosen to save. Dear ones, that cross upon which Christ hung, as it were shouted to everyone who passed by, who witnessed Christ's resurrection or Christ's crucifixion, this man is cursed of God. And yet that cursed cross became, I would submit to you, the supreme expression of God's love for all who will turn away from their own self-righteousness, believing that they are good enough to go to heaven, believing that they are not sinners, believing that God will simply overlook their sins, believing that they are worthy in themselves, and who will acknowledge themselves rather to be guilty sinners before an absolutely holy God. For any and every man, woman, and child who will by faith alone embrace Jesus Christ as their only Savior from sin will not look upon the cross of Christ as something shameful or embarrassing, but will rather look upon that cross as something in which to glory and in which to boast. Not to boast in themselves, but to boast in that cross upon which Christ died For Christ gave his life there that we might live forevermore. On that cross, dear ones, I would again submit to you, is the greatest love story ever told. The greatest love story ever told. The infinite, eternal creator of the universe, against whom we had sinned and rebelled, agreed, voluntarily agreed to become a man. And he suffered upon that cross in order to show us what our sins deserve and in order to show us that only he can forgive those sins which we have committed. Therefore, the shame of the cross for us who are Christians is not in the fact that our Savior died such a death, but rather that it was our sin It was our sin that put him there. 
It was our sin for which he became a curse. It was our sin for which he suffered, not for his own. The bodily suffering upon that cross, however, is only a very faint, faint reminder of the spiritual suffering which our Savior endured in his holy soul as he felt the full force of God's fury against sin as our substitute. Dear ones, if the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ does not humble our hearts before God today, I dare say there is nothing in this world that will humble us before God Almighty. Let us consider then today the curse of Christ's crucifixion in order that we might see the glory of His crucifixion. Well, the main points from our text this Lord's Day are two, and they are these. First of all, the act of crucifixion in Mark 15, verses 20 through 22. And second, the sacrifice of crucifixion in Mark chapter 15, verses 23 through 25. Let us look at it in our first main point, the act of crucifixion. Again, I read for you Mark 15, verses 20 through 22, where it says, And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him, and put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. And they compel one, Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place, Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. As we approach our text this Lord's Day, the Roman cohort of 600 men have now completed their mockery and abuse of Jesus Christ. Christ, you'll remember, has been scourged and his back literally lay waste now, bleeding, cut from that Roman scourge, which at the end of each of those thongs had bones and metal, which was applied to the back of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every nerve ending in his back is set on fire with pain by the Roman scourge that literally removes that flesh from the back. And with every stroke, there is more intensity of pain and there is no anesthesia to relieve the agony that Christ feels. And while in this intense pain, the Roman cohort place a robe upon his bloody back. They put a crown of thorns upon his head. They give him a wooden scepter, rod, which is supposed to be a wooden scepter, or a royal scepter. And they begin to bow before him and mock him, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, crying out, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him, and then they take the wooden rod from his hand, and they begin to beat his head, the scripture says, pounding that crown, those crown of thorns deeper and deeper into his skull. This he suffered as a substitute for sinners who deserve to die such a death themselves for all eternity. It was while Christ was in this most broken bodily state, his face bruised, 
blood flowing from his head and from his back, that Pilate, the Roman governor, thought he would try one more time to secure the approval of the Jewish Sanhedrin in releasing Christ. So Pilate now takes our blessed Redeemer out of the judgment hall and once again brings him out to the Jewish Sanhedrin into the crowd, the mob that's gathered outside, and shows them this this beaten, bloody Christ in order to secure the sympathies of the people so that they might say, well, release him. Look at what he suffered already. But rather than that, the people upon hearing, upon seeing Christ and hearing Pilate say, I find no fault in this man. They're they're not overcome with sympathy and pity. But in anger, they begin to cry out all the more, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate tries to, to calm the crowd again. He says, but I find no fault in this man. And the Jewish Sanhedrin present to Pilate two reasons why they believe Christ should be crucified. The first, because Christ said he was the Son of God in John 19.7. And the Jews knew that for Christ to call himself the Son of God was to make himself equal to God because the Son bears the nature of the Father. Christ was claiming to be God in flesh. The Jews knew that. That was the first reason they said he deserved to die. The second reason they state that he should die is because he claimed to be the king of Israel. And the Jews used this particular claim and he was the king of Israel. In fact, he was the king of all nations. He's the king of kings and lord of lords, the Bible teaches. But the Jews used this particular claim on the part of Christ to manipulate Pilate by saying... If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. You allow a rival to Caesar to continue to live. And so Pilate turns Christ over to the Jews or to the Romans at the bequest of the Jews to be crucified. Christ was, in fact, there was both the Son of God and the King of Israel. He did not deny these accusations that were brought against him. He could have perhaps ended right then and there what was going on if he had said, Now, you've misunderstood me. I'm not the Son of God. I'm not the King of Israel. He said nothing because these were claims that he held to. They were true of him. He who created the universe by the word of his power could have consumed all of those people immediately with fire. Those who hated him, those who beat him, those who now sought to crucify him. But he voluntarily suffered, dear ones, all this in order to remove the guilt of sin from unworthy rebels that those rebels who lay hold of Christ by faith might be set free from God's holy judgment and become the very children of God. We read the very beginning of the service from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And I repeat for you there, 
where it says that we are to look into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Notice what it says now. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, that is the shame of the cross, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The Lord Jesus endured the shame of the cross, the pain of the cross, the curse of the cross for the joy that was set before him in securing the salvation of all of his people, all of those who would look to him in faith. Mark chapter 15 verse 20 states that after the mockery of Christ was completed, that they led him out to crucify him. Death by crucifixion was one of the most cruel and degrading forms of execution ever used in history. In fact, when we want to describe in our English language the worst kind of physical pain and suffering, we might use the word excruciating. As in, I had the most excruciating pain Excruciate has in it the Latin word to crucify. Let me describe for you briefly the process and torment of crucifixion so that you may all the more understand and appreciate the physical suffering that our Savior willingly endured to save those who hated him and wanted nothing to do with him. First of all, Christ was forced to carry on his back to the place of execution his cross, or at least the horizontal beam of that cross, according to John chapter 19, verse 17. Now remember the Lord Jesus was already in severe pain and had lost much blood due to the Roman scourge and the crown of thorns that had been beaten into a skull with that wooden rod. Furthermore, can you imagine the pain of having that wooden cross rub against the many open wounds that were now upon Christ's back? Every step brought a new sensation of pain that riveted through his body. And then, secondly, he was led through the streets of Jerusalem in order to instill fear in those who would see him carrying this cross and all that he had gone through thus far, that they did not want to uh, become a criminal. They thought like Christ, though Christ was sinless, but this was to instill fear in the people to walk this, whoever was being crucified through the streets so as to cause them to be cautious about uh, violating the laws of Rome. But it also no doubt incurred, as he walked through the streets of Jerusalem, the ridicule, the further mockery of the mobs that were gathering. Ordinarily, there hung around the neck of the accused a a wooden sign that identified the crime for which that person was being crucified. And this sign would then be nailed to the top of the cross for all to see. The sign that was nailed to the cross upon which Christ hung said this, the King of the Jews. 
Somewhere along that painful road in Jerusalem, the weakness of our Savior must have literally overwhelmed him. For we find that a certain Simon, who was in the crowd, was compelled to carry the cross of Christ for him. Perhaps the Lord had passed out from a loss of blood or had fallen under the weight of a cross due to mere exhaustion. For you must remember that it was now Friday morning and Christ had not had any sleep since Wednesday evening. During the previous night, our Savior had been unjustly interrogated moment by moment, hour after hour, by both Jewish and Roman courts. Concerning this Simon, we learned that he was one who was from the city of Cyrene. Apparently he was a Jew, for this is a Jewish name, Simon. Cyrene was a city in the northern in northern Africa in the country which we would now know as Libya. He was probably there in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover of the Jews at that season of the year. We're told in the text that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus, who must have been well-known individuals uh, for their names to be mentioned. And uh, for their names to be mentioned being sons, uh, that's quite unusual to mention a father and then to say that this father was the father of so-and-so, or his sons were so-and-so. So it must mean that they had some degree of notoriety uh, at that particular time. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in sending his final greetings uh, to the Church of Rome, in Romans 16.13, does greet a certain Rufus. Perhaps this was the Rufus whose father Simon bore this particular cross of Christ. Now Simon was compelled, dear ones, to carry the cross of the Lord. He was compelled to do so. He was pulled out of the crowd to do so. I dare say it's no fun carrying crosses. Those crosses can be very, very heavy. Those crosses are painful. They are objects of shame and bring ridicule and scorn. But Simon here, I would submit to you pictures for us what all Christians are called to do. To bear their cross for the cause of Christ, for the sake of Jesus Christ. For Jesus described for us a Christian. He described for us what a Christian is, what a Christian does at one point in his ministry in Matthew 16, verse 24. And this is what he said a Christian would do. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If anyone would be a disciple of Christ, let him deny himself and is say no to his own desires, sinful desires. Say no to his own sinful lusts and passions 
take up the cross which God has given unto him and like Christ go forth to put to death sin in his life. Most professing Christians would rather wear a cross around their neck than to bear a cross upon the shoulders. You see, it's very easy to wear a cross around one's neck. And you know, there's no biblical warrant for wearing crosses. But there is biblical warrant for bearing the cross that Christ gives to us to bear. And that is what God calls us to do if we are a disciple of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to bear a cross or to carry a cross? It means that we are willing to sacrifice everything in order to follow Jesus Christ and the truth that he has given to us. As Christians, we are called, dear ones, to crucify everything in this life that hinders us from loving and obeying Christ supremely. Everything. You see, dear ones, he was crucified for me. Now he calls me to crucify all for him if I would be a faithful disciple. And so I ask you, dear ones, today, are you willing to suffer for Jesus Christ? Are you willing to take up that cross, even if it's heavy, even if it's painful, even if it's an object of shame and ridicule in the eyes of the world, are you willing to take up that cross in order to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Christ has not called us to live a comfortable Christianity where we have all that we desire in this life. Suffering for Christ may at times mean we will lose friends because they think we're religious fanatics because we follow Christ. Picking up our cross and following Christ may mean that we lose even jobs because... We cannot lie for our boss or because we cannot work on the Sabbath day. Following Christ has led to even the death of many Christians in the past. And in the present, many Christians are suffering around the world because they take up their cross, they deny themselves, and they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That has not come to the United States at this point in time where we must suffer to that extent, but it may come to that extent sometime in the future. Are we willing even to be imprisoned for Christ? Are we willing to take up the cross of Christ and to die upon it if necessary? Yes, being a Christian, dear ones, is costly. But it cost Christ everything. It cost Christ his life. Being a Christian could have could have upon the outside of the uh, outside of the label, as it were, it could have this particular indication. Being a Christian may be hazardous to your health. But after carrying the cross in this life, beloved, the Christian will wear a crown for all eternity in heaven where all suffering and misery 
will be forgotten. Listen to the words of Christ again in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. The same passage from which I read earlier. Look at that passage one more time. And I will read the two verses that come right afterwards as well. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life, who will risk everything to save his life, who will give up Christ, who will not follow Christ in order to save his life, shall lose it. Shall lose his life. Lose his life for all eternity in hell. And whosoever will lose his life in this particular time, in this particular earthly time, for my sake, shall find it. Shall find it for all eternity. Verse 26 says, For what is a man profited? What does he gain? If he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What is more priceless and valuable than his own soul? All of these things on earth will perish, will vanish, will be consumed. We will leave it all behind when we die. And then what? You see, then it becomes so significant, so important that we have Jesus Christ and that we have not forsaken him to gain the world. Continuing on with the crucifixion of Christ, upon arriving at Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, the Lord Jesus was then stripped of his clothing as an act of public humiliation and had long spikes hammered through each hand, or more likely through each wrist near the hand, in this particular area right here, just below the palm. He had long spikes driven through his two feet in order to secure him to that cross. Now, dear ones, hanging in that position, there was no position upon a cross into which one might get in order to be free from even a moment of torment that racked his body. For if the accused pushed himself with whatever strength that he had by his legs in order to take the pressure, the weight from hanging there, the muscles after a period of time and his legs would begin to go into spasm and go into muscle cramps. And he would no longer be able to support the weight of his body with his legs and then would fall to hang again by those nails in his hands. As the cross took its toll of pain upon the body of Christ, so the increasing heat of the day took its toll upon the thirst as his body underwent the fever of dehydration under the scorching sun. Dear ones, 
crucifixion was intended to be a long, agonizing death. It was not intended to be something quick. It was intended to draw it out for hours, and in some cases, literally days. Crucifixion was intended, dear ones, to be one of the most cruel, degrading forms of death in all of history. The only act of mercy that the Romans directed to those being crucified was to at times break their legs so that they could no longer support their bodies any longer and that much more quickly die. According to Mark 15.25, it was the third hour or 9 a.m. when Christ was crucified. And as we learn from Mark chapter 15, verse 34, the sinless Son of God would suffer literally excruciating torment in his body until the ninth hour, or 3 p.m. The Lord hung for six hours upon that cursed cross, where every minute in that torment probably seemed like an eternity. This was the cursed death that Christ suffered physically upon that cross for sinners whom he had loved and chosen from all eternity to save. And we have not even considered at this point the greatest suffering he endured in his soul for the sins of his people, but that we shall do in the weeks to come. Such, dear ones, was the act of crucifixion. Let us consider very, very briefly the second main point then, the sacrifice of crucifixion in Mark 15, verses 23 through 25, where it says, And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Before the sermon ends today, let me briefly outline for you and demonstrate to you that Christ's crucifixion was not merely a horrible and unjust death of an innocent man, but supremely important is the fact that Christ's death was a voluntary sacrifice for the sin of man. The sacrifice of Christ upon the cross is evidenced in his refusal to drink the wine that was mingled with myrrh. You see, this particular beverage that was offered to Christ, and we don't know specifically who offered it to him, there are historical records that we can go to that indicate that there were apparently women uh, in Jerusalem who offered to those going to be uh, crucified this particular drink. Now, this was a very bitter pain medication that was offered to Christ. However, the purpose of this drink was to help relieve some of the intensity of suffering and to deaden the senses to some degree until the body of the, uh, that hung upon the cross eventually 
gave way unto death. Now, why didn't the Lord Jesus receive that which would help to relieve his suffering and his pain? Why? It was offered to him. It was available. We certainly are allowed to do so when we're in pain and suffering. We're certainly encouraged to to use whatever we can use in order to alleviate pain. You have a bad toothache or a headache. Most of us will try, if it's severe enough, to relieve that pain. If you go in for a surgery, I don't know too many people who say, just you know, do the surgery. Don't give me any pain medication. Don't put me to sleep. You see, that is, is something that we know God gives to us in all ordinary circumstances. But why didn't Christ do so? Why did he refuse it in his situation? Well, I can only think of one reason. He had to suffer the full force of that pain and agony upon the cross, not for himself, but for the sins of scoundrels like you and me. He was suffering for sinners. He would not minimize the pain that he would suffer. He would, in effect, maximize the pain that he suffered so as to pay the debt and the penalty which we owed to the Lord God for our sin. There was his death was sacrificial and vicarious. That is, it was substitutionary for the sins of all those who would come to him in faith. It was his love for sinners whom he came to save that drove him to refuse that anesthesia. Dear ones, every pain and misery he suffered was for you who will look to Christ as the only one who can save you from the guilt and punishment of sin and grant you forgiveness and righteousness and everlasting life. Beloved, I close today by reminding us we all need a Savior. Every last one of us. From the youngest of us to the oldest of us. From little Emiliano, I think maybe my wife is the oldest in our congregation today, to her. From the poorest to the wealthiest among us, we all need a Savior. We all need a Savior because we are all sinners. We all need a Savior, dear ones, because we will all perish in everlasting condemnation in hell without such a Savior. Christ hung there in agony and was stripped of all of his clothing. He was laid bare. He was naked in order that he might clothe you and me with his perfect righteousness in order that he might clothe all of us who will come to him in faith with his perfect righteousness. Beloved, God invites 
each of us present today to look in faith to that sinless Savior who hung upon the cursed cross for the sins of undeserving sinners. We find these words in John chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You remember in the Old Testament when Israel was in the wilderness, wandering about in the wilderness, having been delivered from Egypt, from the bondage of Egypt, God having delivered them by those miraculous plagues and having brought them through the Red Sea. They began to complain, even though God fed them, even though God gave them water. They began to complain and to complain, to grumble against God, to despise even God's providence and His provision for them. And God sent upon them serpents to bite them, to destroy them, because they were such a wicked, wicked, ungrateful, and unthankful people. But the Lord in His mercy, though they deserved all to perish, the Lord in His mercy took, told Moses to take a pole and to hang the figure of a brazen or bronze serpent upon that pole. And that all who looked upon that particular serpent would be healed. Here we find that Jesus Christ was lifted up upon a cross and he became sin for us. He who was sinless became sin for us. That we might look upon him hanging upon that cross. And we might be cured and healed now and for all eternity, forgiven of all the sins that we have committed against God and against our fellow man. Dear ones, this is the remedy to sin in our lives. The forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ who hung upon that cross. And we are all invited, every last one of us are invited to come to Christ today to take him to receive him as our savior to receive him as the one who alone can heal us of all of those sins may we in our hearts each one of us look to Christ today please stand with me in prayer this reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's revival books you are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. 
Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.